Scripture reading today comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, so if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open there, that's where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the Holy Scriptures read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we ask again that you'd be our teacher through your spirit. I ask, Father, that I would not say my thoughts and my opinions, but only yours as revealed in your holy written word. Lord, we are falling short of what this task calls us to do. We fail it all the time as individuals and collectively. So we ask by the power of your spirit that we would live more victoriously and that we would walk a worthy walk that brings unity to your body and glory to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. He was a modern-day Mowgli, whose childhood was pretty much the jungle book. And just like Mowgli, Marcos Rodriguez Pantoya had been taken in as a young child and raised by a pack of wolves. I kid you not. He was born in 1946 in Spain in the city of Cordoba. When, then when Marcos, later on, after his mother died, what happened was he was sent away from his abusive drunken father to live with a shepherd out in the Morena Mountains. The shepherd was a nice man, which was a nice change of pace because his father, as I just said, was a drunk and was not a very nice man. And so the shepherd took very good care of Marcos in these mountains. However, one day the shepherd left and he never returned. Marcos didn't know why. Did he abandon him? Had he been attacked by wolves or a bear or some wild animal? Marcos didn't know, but he waited hoping that the shepherd would return. But he never did. And so Marcos sat there waiting, abandoned in the mountains without anyone to care for him. One day then, a pack of wolves raided the shepherd's hut, killing all of the baby lambs. It wiped out all of them. However, Marcos was over in the corner, hidden, and they just left him. They didn't attack him. In fact, not only did they leave Marcos unharmed, but the mother wolf of the pack took him in as a cub of her own. And so Marcos then grew up as what we know as a feral child a child raised by animals. He didn't get a movie, but he had the same lifestyle, basically, of Mowgli. There weren't talking bears and dancing bears, I don't think, but 
He lived out in the wilderness with a pack of wolves. In fact, when winter came, these wolves, he would later recount that they taught him how to find shelter in a hollowed-out tree from when the winter storms would come to keep himself warm. They would live in caves often, he would say, and that the wolves would even protect him from bats, from snakes, and other dangerous animals. And so young Marcos grew up away from human society, just a young nine-year-old boy, all by himself, with no one to take care of him at all. And yet, out in the wilderness, though he was taken care of, Marcos learned the lifestyle, the diet, the habits, and the behaviors of wolves, not people. That was the social etiquette he learned. See, these wolves taught him how to survive, and that was Marcos's role models and teachers as a child. So Marcos grew up away from human society, away from proper manners, proper customs, and basic human social etiquette. Some of us struggle with that and were raised in human society. But imagine how difficult this must have been for Marcos. Because suddenly, one day, Marcos was thrusted back into human civilization because police officers came across him out in the woods when they were looking for a runaway criminal, and they found Marcos, the feral child who had grown up and was now 19. And so they connected Marcos with Spanish social services, who then helped Marcos reacclimate to society, because Marcos had forgotten basically how to talk. He had to relearn everything. And so they gave him a house, some money, a job, as well as taught him basic human manners and social norms. And though Marcos had been saved for the rest of his days, It's no understatement to say that it was going to be a challenge for him to acclimate to the new society, to not revert back to his animalistic ways, which he had been taught and reared and grew up in. Marcos would have to control his animal-like impulses as he engaged with real people. He would have to learn to be patient with them. He would have to learn to be gentle with them. And he would have to realize, in many ways, though he had this brand new life back in society, he still was a fish out of water. So that was Marcos's challenge, to live properly out of his old life in the new life that he had been given. Church, do you realize that every single one of us who is a follower of Christ is a feral child who's been saved out of an old animalistic type life into a new one? Every single one of us has. Every single one of us who names the name of Jesus has been saved out of that old, barbaric, vicious lifestyle into this new, civilized, heavenly lifestyle. Sure, we didn't live with actual wolves, but make no mistake about it. Our old life, our old nature, the gap between being raised by wolves and coming to human society, it's infinitely greater going from our old nature to our new nature that Paul describes for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Not only, see, we weren't, raised, we weren't raised by wolves. However, we were shaped and fashioned by something infinitely more insidious, infinitely more vicious and feral. And what was that? The demons of hell. What does Jesus say? What did he say about who our father is? Here's what he says in John 8, Jesus says, I can't advance. Can you advance me, Jacob? Thank you. Jesus says in, in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. See that? That's who we were raised by. You think that's going to result in some bad habits 
Some bad social etiquette? Of course it is. Of course it is. Just like children today imitate their earthly fathers, so too do we imitate our spiritual fathers. And we only have two options. We either have the devil for our father, spiritually, or God the Father for our father. If you're a Christian, it's God. If you're not a Christian, it's Satan. Those are the only two options. But here's the thing about that. Even if God is now your father, even if you've been brought out of that old life, the old Pharaoh life, into the new heavenly life, you still have a whole lot of behaviors and customs that you've picked up from your days in the wild. Some of you know what I'm talking about. All of you hopefully do. And so if you're going to strive to live this new heavenly life like a child of the king and not a child of wolves, you're going to have to strive. You're going to have to work at it for the rest of your days. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul just has gotten done in the first opening three chapters explaining what our new life is and what our old life was and how we were saved out of it. That's what the first three chapters are. And then in chapter 4, Paul begins telling us, okay, that's what you were saved out of and saved into. Now here's how you walk in it. Here's the social etiquette. Here's the heavenly norms of how you interact with your fellow heavenly citizens. What Paul is describing here is not only vitally important for every single one of us as individuals, but it's crucially important collectively for us as the church. Because as you know, the church isn't a building. What's the church? Me, you, us together. We are the body of Christ. And so if we aren't following these heavenly social norms, proper etiquette with each other, it's going to be bad for us. Not just individually, but collectively. I mean, think about this for a second, right? If I'm sitting there talking to you after church, and we're having a good conversation, and, I don't know, Frank comes up and takes a bite out of the back of your leg while we're talking, that's not going to be a fun thing. You're going to be upset with Frank. It's going to cause all sorts of problems, isn't it? And yet, sadly, devouring animalistic behavior happens all the time in churches. Sure, we don't literally bite each other, but we metaphorically do. We do in other ways. How often do we use our words to talk negatively about somebody else in a slanderous way? Oh, we just want to share information. You just need to know this about them. But yeah, I don't think they love Jesus quite like I do. I mean, I mean, like you should. Have you ever heard things like that before? How about uh, words that cut each other down with remarks? Right? You know the old expression, you know, I just push you down to pull myself up. That's what it is, right? We do that. That absolutely happens in churches. Sure, maybe we don't outright say, I think Brother Billy's a total loser, but we treat him that way. We treat them like they're a second-class citizen, don't we? Anybody ever seen this in churches? Am I the only one? Of course we have. Don't we sometimes treat others like we are in a wolf pack together and we are fighting and competing for who's going to be the alpha wolf? Yes. And so we go around with our words, with our attitude, and with our actions, biting and devouring one another. And in Galatians 5, Paul warns us not to do that. Here's what he says. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you too are not consumed by one another. If we live like this, if we bring our old animalistic behavior into the church, we're going to harm not only ourselves, we're going to get consumed, right? But we're going to harm one another. And if we do that, 
There's no question about it biblically. We will not be a healthy church. We will be in the category of the church of Laodicea as we looked at a couple weeks ago. We don't want to be in that camp, do we? We want to be a church that is a spotless bride that stands before God and doesn't shrink back when he appears. And so to be a healthy church, to be a united church, we have to walk a worthy walk. Well, how do we do that? We've got three ways we're going to do this. A united church walks in humility. A united church walks in gentleness. And third, a united church walks in patience. Let's look at that first one, humility. In verse 2, Paul tells us that humility, walking in humility, is absolutely vital <laughs> for a healthy church. What does that look like? Like, we're supposed to be humble. What do, what do we do, all right? How do I put on these shoes of humility and get a walk in? Do we just get all Eeyore mode, and whenever, Eeyore mode, and when somebody comes up and compliments us, you know, like say they come to the pianist, like, oh, that was just lovely today. Do we say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm terrible. I'm surprised they even let me play. Is that humility? If somebody says, Pastor, praise God for the sermon you taught today, or comes up to a Sunday school teacher and says, that was just wonderful. Thank you for, thank you how you put the time in to share God's word with us. You say, oh, no, that was terrible. Sorry. No. By doing that, you're just spotlighting yourself, right? What do you do? Instead, you say, thank you, praise God, and you divert that spotlight off of yourself to God. That's what true humility is. It's not Eeyoreism. Nobody, I'm worthless. No. Stop it. That's not humility. That's actually pride. Going around being an insufferable wet blanket is not godliness. It's not. Not according to the Bible, it's not. See, in the Bible, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. It is. And why is that the case? Because you've been there. You've done that. You've examined what it is to focus on the self, and what you found wasn't very exciting. What you found was actually really depressing, because you know what you found out? You realize that you are completely spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing, nada, to offer God or anyone else, because you are a sinner. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, don't you? What does it say there? Blessed are the poor in what? Two people remember. Wonderful. Blessed are the poor in spirit, okay? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are we poor in spirit, church? We are poor in spirit because when we stand before a holy God, a God of splendor, a God of righteousness, a God of worth, and by comparison, we realize, well, I have absolutely nothing to offer whatsoever. I am totally and completely morally bankrupt. There is nothing I can do to have the kingdom of heaven be mine. And so what we then realize is that the kingdom of heaven, our citizenship in heaven, is a gift. It's given to us. And that comes how? By grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if that's not your approach to God, I don't care if you believe in God, I don't care if you go to church on Sundays, I don't care if you read your Bible every day, you're not a Christian. Plain and simple. You're religious, but you're not a Christian. And so if we begin to brag about what we do, what we have to offer God, what we have to offer the church, or even just start thinking highly of ourselves in comparison to others, do you know what that is? Divine plagiarism. It is. What does Paul say? Why do you boast? For what do you have that you have not been given? 
And not only does that apply to our salvation church, but that applies to every talent and ability and spiritual growth step that you've made since trusting in Christ. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say? Who made the works that we should walk in them? Me or God? God. He gets all the glory and all the praise. And this, he did all this so that why? So that no one can boast. It's divine plagiarism to boast about our salvation or our sanctification. It is. Every skill set we have, every ability we have, whether that's a spiritual gift or a natural one, is on loan from God. Do you think of it that way? Because if you don't, you're probably doing some biting and some devouring of the other sheep around you. In Philippians 2, 3, Paul writes this about humility. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You ever tried that before? Have you ever tried to consider somebody else as more important, more significant than you? It's not easy. If you think it is, you've never really tried or never succeeded at it in any way, shape, or form. It's not an easy thing to do. For instance, let me talk to my fellow chatterboxes here, all right? People who like to talk. All you type A extrovert personalities, you know who you are. You're probably were tempted to raise your hand just now. Why do we talk more than we listen? Part of it's personality, don't get me wrong, but why do we talk more than we listen? Why do we struggle to not dominate our conversations with other people? Think about that for a minute. Why do we do it? Do you think it might have something to do with holding ourselves in high ambition? Thinking highly of ourselves? Might we talk so much because we think we have the most profound thing to offer the conversation? Oh, you guys are talking about this? Let me tell you about that. I just read like three books on this in the last two years. Let me set you straight. We have a high view of ourselves. We have a lofty view of ourselves. And that's one of the reasons we insist on talking so much because, hey, you know what? Not only do I know more than everyone else, but everyone here, they really need to know how much I know. Right? That's pride. Anybody else do this? Just me. Okay. But you know what? Like, that's what we do. And why do we do that? It's because we desperately want people to see our value. And where are we placing our value in that kind of a situation? We're placing our value in how much we know. We're placing our value, our identities, are based in our smartness, in our intelligence, and we become terrified at the thought that somebody else might not recognize our value, our significance, and our worth. And so we have to let people know how smart we are. We have to be the talkers in the conversation. We have to be the one showing off everything we know. And that's, our, that's a problem. Why? Because that's our identity, as we just said. And where do Christians find their identity? Where are they supposed to find their identity and self-worth at? In the things I can do, in my ability to play an instrument, in my ability to lead a small group, in my job. Are they supposed to find it in those things, church? No. Where do they find it? In Christ. In Christ. Instead of looking inwardly to find my value, to find my significance, and then comparing it with others, I look outwardly to Christ because I recognize inwardly on my own, I have nothing to offer of any worth or value. And anything that I do have that might contribute to somebody else's good, that's on loan from God anyways. 
Instead of firmly resting our identity in Christ, us extroverts, we rest it in our intelligence, in our social talkability. And so every conversation that we have is an identity crisis. It is. It's an identity crisis. We have to make it known what our identity is. And so that's how, why we dominate those conversations. And you know what? Not only does this make us a bad listener, but this is ironic. You with me? Here's what's ironic about the talkers. Some of them are the worst communicators I've ever met. Right? You ever talk to people who just like to talk, 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 and you're like, I don't know what they said. It was just like a machine gun of words coming at me. Anybody ever run into that? Probably, probably some of us have done that. It's ironic because we're terrible communicators, and yet we use three million words to say three words sometimes. And that sort of makes sense. Why? Because those talkers, people who dominate conversations, they never stop to really listen to see if they're being understood. Because if you're going to be understood, right, if you're going to know if you're being understood, you have to stop and listen and say, did that make sense? And then let the person talk back to you. One of the worst ways that this manifests itself has to be with interrupting, which basically turns every single conversation with each other into a verbal sumo wrestling contest. Like, I'm going to talk over you. I'm going to shove you around. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. The verbal sumo wrestling contest. And if that's how we approach conversations with others, then there's no question, church, we're not going to walk a worthy walk in humility. You can't do that you can't interact with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and walk in humility while doing all that. All right, now for the introverts. You can't hide. Now, hey, wait a minute, Pastor. I'm, I'm shy. Don't, don't. Be, you be careful now, Pastor. It's, it's shyness. It's not rudeness. Before you write me off, let me talk to you about this for just a minute. Webster, for whatever this is worth, defines shyness as... The state of being timid, easily frightened, reserved, bashful, and shrinking from contact with others, or shrinking back might be a better way to say that. Look at that description. Think about it for a second. Does any of that at all sound like New Testament language for the Christian life? Even a little bit. No, not even a little bit. And that's because in the Bible, that timid, easily frightened thing it's called sin. We're not supposed to live in fear, right? In the Bible, being fearful of others is not a good thing. It's wrong. And so ironically enough, for the naturally shy introverts here, make no mistake, you're actually struggling with the same sort of thing as the extroverts are, but in a different way. It's still fear of man. It's just manifesting itself differently. Think about this. Extroverts have a fear of man because the extroverts have a fear of man. They come off how? Arrogant know-it-alls. We do. Come on. You know it. I put myself in that category. We do. At the same time, because introverts have a fear of man, they come off as rude people who never talk because they think they're above and better than everybody else. But behind both of these dispositions lies a pride-driven fear of man. That's not the new life we've been brought into, church. That's the old way. That's the way of the carnal flesh, not the way of the spirit. 
2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I don't mean to be rude. I just can't think of anything to say. Okay, I'll grant you that sometimes that's difficult and that can be part of your personality. Even as an extrovert, I have introverted moments where I don't feel like talking to anyone. But the reality is we have to recognize that is leftover behaviors from our life in the wolf pack. It absolutely is. What did we just read in Philippians? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So practically speaking, applying this, what do extroverts need to do? They need to love others and think of others as being more significant than themselves by being quiet and listening, by asking questions and actually keeping their ears open and their mouths shut long enough to get the answers without interrupting. Extroverts need to love others by caring about what they have to say, think, and feel, and that's going to manifest them in them being more quiet. At the same time, introverts need to love others and count others as more significant than themselves by welcoming others, by greeting those they have a hard time greeting, by talking to people whom they don't have a shared interest with. Anybody struggle with that? That's hard. Like when you meet somebody and you're like, what do you like to do? And they're like fishing. And I'm like, I can't relate. I'm out, you know? Because I don't fish. I eat the fish so I can talk about that. But you know what I mean? Like it's harder sometimes, isn't it? To welcome people. We are commanded to welcome one another, to greet one another, to be hospitable towards one another. And sometimes that's harder than others, especially if we're talking to somebody who has not figured out the new social norms of the heavenly life and they're still doing a lot of wolf pack based stuff. That makes it more difficult. And yet all of us, no matter which disposition we're coming from, we have to do not what we feel like doing, but what Scripture calls us to do. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this on pride and humility, and it's absolutely brilliant, so I'm going to read it. To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap, and listen to this, who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility where he will not be thinking about himself at all. That is biblical humility. In Philippians 2, 4, Paul goes on, and this is the verse after the one we just looked at a minute ago. He says, Let each of one of you look to, not to your own interests, but to the, also to the interests of others. Why do, extroverters talk, why do extroverted talkers dominate the conversation? I think it's fair to say because they don't care about the interests of others. Not really. They care about showing how much we know, in talking about our interests. At the same time, why do shy introverts disengage from conversation with others and not come off friendly and welcoming? It's because they don't actually care about the interests of others. Same thing, it just manifests itself in a different way. And so practically, both talkative extroverts and shy introverts, they got to fight their old nature. 
They have to fight their old nature, which is driven by fear of man that manifests itself differently in these two forms. Because if we don't, extroverts, if you dominate others with your words in the conversation and interrupt them and never listen and talk over them, your rudeness, because that's what it is, it's going to bite and devour them. Introverts, if you respond in shyness to others, your rudeness, that's what it is, is going to bite and devour others. And so instead, what must we do? We must all walk in humility as we strive, as we work at it, to greet and welcome one another. And the challenge here, this is what the real challenge all comes down to, it's to consider others more significant than yourselves. Or as Paul says here in verse 4, not just to look to your own interests, but the interest of others. Now, one more thing about humility here before we move on. You're like, well, that's enough. No, no more. Too bad. Does being humble mean that we have to be humble about truth? Does it? Can we have theological certainty? Or is that prideful? Is that arrogant? Is that divisive? Hey, man, doctrine divides. Love unites. All we need is love. You know, start singing the Beatles song. <clears throat> is it wrong for us to fight and divide over the truth? Is that what it means to be biblically humble? Yes. If we ignore the entire context of this passage, that answer is yeah, yes. So obviously, we're not going to ignore the context, and so the answer is no. Here's what Paul goes on to say. In Ephesians 4... In Ephesians, oh, there we go. I didn't put that in there. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, look at your Bible. It's not on the screen. Here's what he says in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. I don't see two in there anywhere, do you? Just as you were called to the what? The one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It sort of sounds like Paul thinks there's only one truth here, doesn't it, church? Not multiple truths. One truth that we have to cling to. One Lord, one faith. But hey, that seems kind of, that seems kind of narrow. Never mind. You're telling me all other religions don't lead to God? Who are you to claim you have truth? If you talk to anybody who's not a Christian, that's the kind of language you're going to hear nowadays. They're going to tell you this kind of narrow thinking will cause disunity and division. And sadly enough, you're going to go, if you, there's a lot of churches around us even that will tell us that to cling to doctrinal truth is arrogant. It's, it's going to cause disunity. It's going to divide people. So let's just focus on the basics. Let's not worry about all that. Let's just, can't we just love Jesus? Isn't that enough? No. It's not enough. For we must hold to the truth, the one truth, the one faith, because we serve one Lord. And we only approach that Lord by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Not Gandhi, not Allah, except by me. And you come on his terms. Good intentions don't count for nothing. And so we must hold the truth firmly with humility, patience, and gentleness. See, here's the thing, church. What unites us isn't our shared interest in tater tot free 
potluck dinners. Give me a couple amens. What unites us isn't our shared interest in singing music on Sunday mornings. It's not. What unites us isn't even our belief in the Creator. A lot of people out there will say they believe in the Creator. That's not what unites us. What unites us? What unites us is the truth of God as revealed in the Word of God. Full stop. The Bible that you hold in your hands, the truth revealed in that is what unites us. And this truth that is in our Bibles, in the Word of God, that's something that Jude tells us we have to fight for it. We have to contend for it. Because you know what's going to happen? Our old wolf pack's going to come sniffing around and they're going to try to get in these walls too. And they don't like what the Word of God says. And they are going to try to cause disunity, to try to get us to pull away from the truth. Just, hey, you know what? You don't need doctrine. Doctrine divides. Love unites. Let's just love each other. You're going to hear things like that. And that's not unity. Unity is based upon the truth of God revealed in the Word of God, which is ultimately, as we know, revealed in the person of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so for us to have true unity, we must not only have right doctrine. We absolutely need that, but we need more than that. We actually need to do the things Paul's telling us to do in this text, which is to walk in humility and, secondly, gentleness, which leads us to our second point. A united church walks not just in humility, but also in gentleness. In verse 2, Paul goes on to mention gentleness as being a vitally important part of our worthy walk. I like how the King James Version translates this. It translates it as meekness. Some of you, if you have a King James Bible, that's what it says right there, right? It's meekness. That's a great word to describe what Paul's talking about here in this text. Walking in meekness. What is meekness? We don't use that word a lot. Well, I'll tell you what. What meekness isn't, it's not weakness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is power that's under control. That's the definition of meekness. It also serves as a good understanding for what Paul means by gentleness here. Meekness isn't weakness, it's power under control. Picture this massive, huge war horse. I mean, I'm talking like one of those beastly ones you almost need a ladder to climb up on top of, right? Picture one of those horses, all right? There is massive power there. But now imagine that horse with the bit in its mouth who's been trained and restrained to follow the orders and everything. There's certainly still massive power there, but it's not flailing all about kicking everybody and anyone who comes within its, within its vicinity. No. The power is still there, but it's power under control. Same thing with the nuclear reactor. It's power under control. Similarly, church, every single one of us has the power within us to either help or harm those around us with our words and actions. We can use our words then to bite and devour and tear each other down, or we can use our words to edify, to build up, and encourage one another in godliness. And that phrase, building up one another, shameless plug for the Sunday school class we're about to begin. What's the difference here then between the two? What is the difference? The difference between the two is gentleness. It's meekness. It's taking that power that we have, harnessing it for good, through the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing it under control. For gentleness constrains it. 
it harnesses it into a non-destructive force, the same way a nuclear reactor does the same thing with nuclear power. That's what we're called to do. So yes, we speak the truth in love. That's how we talk. We speak in love. But we speak in love and gentleness, not just bluntly throwing out the truth. We don't harness God's word into a club of self-righteous pride that we go around and just club people over the head with it every time they're out of line. It might make us feel better. It's not biblical. However, neither are we to be so gentle and meek that our gentleness becomes weakness that never actually speaks the truth in love. It does speak the truth. Even sometimes when you know the truth you're going to speak is going to offend or is likely to offend, but you don't add offense to it because you present it with love, with gentleness, and with humility. Galatians 6.1, here's the instructions. If anyone is caught in any transgression, that's sin, you who are spiritual should do what? Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. A spirit of meekness. See, there's two ditches here. One ditch speaks the truth so boldly, so harshly, almost in a pokey-in-the-eye sort of way, that nobody can ever actually hear it. The other ditch is so passive, you know, maybe it's passive-aggressive, right? And it's so weak that it's either never said at all or it's said so lightly that nobody's going to pick up on that. Those are the two ditches. And so we must speak the truth in meekness and humility out of our love for God and the person that we're trying to help. Which means this, practically, church. When we see our brother or sister in Christ erring into sin, whether that's living in sin or doctrinal error, whatever, that's affecting them negatively, what we do is we prayerfully follow Matthew 18. What does Matthew 18 say to do when you see sin in another believer? Just pray about it for five years? Well, I just just need to pray about it until the Lord tells me to go talk to him. Well, I think he already did, and it's in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, if you have an offense with your brother, if you see sin in them, go to them. Don't go to 17 people in the church and say, you know, we just need to, we really need to pray for Brother Bob because he's just, he's sinning in this way and we just need to pray for an opportunity to talk. No, 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 no. That's gossip. That's slander. Go to the person with humility, with gentleness, and confront them. Don't wink at their sin and don't ignore it thinking, hey, you know what? Who am I to judge? I mean, I sin all the time too. Right? So, I mean, I can't say anything to them. That'd be hypocritical. No. Get the log out of your own eye so that you can see the speck in their eye and remove it. We don't get to skip out on this church either because we think somebody else will do it. No. It's a command for each and every one of us. And the fact that somebody else might ought to be the one to do it doesn't remove the obligation from me if I see that same sin in another believer. And so what do we do? We prayerfully go to them, we point out their sin, but we do so with heaviness, in a spirit of humility, love, and gentleness, with the goal, not of poking them in the eye and letting them, you know, getting something off our chest, but with the goal of restoring them. That's what he says to do. You who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1, right there. And you know what? As a pastor, this, this applies to me, but it especially applies to me. In the pastoral epistles, Paul writes to the younger pastor, Timothy, here's what he says. And the Lord's servant, speaking to pastors, because this is the pastoral epistles, it's my job manual. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and what? Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. That God may perhaps grant them repentance, 
leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from our Lord, the head of the church. This is a requirement. And so practically speaking, I mean, I'm going to sin, I'm going to mess up at times, but practically speaking, as your pastor, if my reputation is somebody who likes to theologically hockey check people every time they get out of line, I'm disqualified for ministry. And it's your job to hold me accountable. That makes me unqualified for the office of the pastor. It doesn't matter how theologically accurate my sermons might be. It doesn't matter if they're even good. What matters is, yes, they need to be theologically accurate, but if my life is not theologically accurate, if my life, if the, if the message isn't matching the walk, as we're called to do here, then it's disqualification. This is serious stuff. Do you see how Paul describes this? Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Think about that for a minute. Think about the opponents that you have in your life, and now I want you to reflect for a minute and think, how do I correct them? How do I interact with them when I disagree with them? Facebook comments? Do we talk about those? No. Let's keep going. It does apply to Facebook comments. How about that outspoken person at work who holds to the wrong political beliefs? They're on the other side. They're on the wrong side, right? Like, how about them? Do we have to speak to them and correct them and talk to them with gentleness? How about that unbeliever who walks through our doors and starts explaining how they think we're narrow-minded? They start attacking everything that we stand for as a church. Do we stand up and give them a piece of our mind? Or do we respond to them, as Paul says to, with gentleness? Question. Does this just apply to the church? Or does this apply to our homes? Does it apply to our spouses, to our parents, to our children? Do we walk humbly and gently in patience with them as well? How are you doing on this church? Because it's a command, right? Like, if you can't do it in your home, good luck doing it in the church, because it's going to come out. It's going to leak out in a certain situation. It's absolutely going to happen. And so this command that Paul gives us to walk in a spirit of humility and gentleness and be a peacemaker, this applies to our home. It starts in the home. It starts with the relationships that are closest to us. 1 Peter 3, 4 says, Rather, it should be that of your inner self. What should that be like? The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Yes, we correct sin. Yes, we oppose it. And sometimes we have to oppose it firmly and directly, but we do so how? With a spirit of gentleness with a spirit of meekness, with sweetness to our voice that makes the truth easier to swallow, not harder to swallow. It's already going to be a horse pill. We don't need to add to it. We want to make it easier for them. A united church walks in humility. A united church walks in gentleness. But third, a united church walks in patience. When Paul tells us to be patient with one another, I like this word. It's means that we should forbear. That's the idea. What does forbear mean? It has nothing to do with an animal. It basically means to put up with each other. 
to put up with each other's shenanigans. That's what it's talking about. All right, well, what does that mean? How do we put up with each other? Well, he doesn't say to put up with each other reluctantly. He doesn't say to just grit our teeth and bear it, does he? How are we to put up with each other? Look at verse 2. What's, what's he say? In what? Somebody give it to me. Verse 2. In what? In love. Thank you. There we go. In love. What is love? Is love feeling all the warm and fuzzies whenever you think about that person you're supposed to care for? Is love enjoying that person's company at all times? No. Yeah, right. What is love then? Because if I'm going to put up with you, and vice versa, you're going to put up with me, we have to know what love is. We can't know what the world's definition of love is. We need to know what true biblical love is. Here's what love is. 1 Corinthians 13. The love passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Church, Paul is simply calling us to walk in Christ's footsteps. That's what our mission is. For in Christ, God reached out to us in perfect humility, in perfect gentleness, with perfect patience. And how? On the cross, Christ was humbled in our place. On the cross, Christ exercised perfect meekness, which is what? Power under control as he resisted calling down a legion of angels and destroying all those who mocked and abused him. On the cross, Christ forbeared the sins of the entire world upon himself with perfect patience and love. And why? So that you and I might one day live in this new life he purchased through us and walk in it in humility, with gentleness, and with patience. And so to walk in Christ's footsteps, we must never forget the only reason that we can walk a worthy walk is why? Because he already walked the perfect walk that you and I never could. That's our motive. That's our example. He walked the perfect walk that we never could as he humbly climbed that hill with the cross upon his torn back in order to suffer and die for us. And so here is, here, here's where the rubber hits the road. The degree that we can see and cherish Christ's humility, Christ's gentleness, and Christ's patience towards us is the same degree that we will be able to leave our old, barbaric, animalistic lives behind and instead walk in the new life that he's given us which is a walk of humility, of meekness, and forbearance, of patience. And the degree that we do that is also the the degree to which we will be a united and an effective and a healthy church. And the degree that we don't, we will not be an effective, healthy church. In John 17, right before Jesus was crucified, he prayed this to his Father. May they all be one, 
just as you, Father, and I and I are one. Why? So that the word may be believed that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. That's the motive. So not only does all of this affect our individual lives as Christians, not only does all of this affect our collective lives as a church, but all of this ultimately affects the power of our gospel witness before an unbelieving world. And so we must strive to leave our old life behind and instead strive to walk a worthy walk in the new life that was purchased through us by the blood of Jesus. We must fight to preserve the unity that God has given us. We don't create the unity. He gave it to us. And he did so on the cross. And yet, you read Ephesians 4, Paul calls us to preserve that unity. And so we must fight, we must strive, we must labor to do so, not just for our good, but for the honor of Jesus' great and mighty name. May we as a church walk this walk by the power of God. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just want to pray over your people right now and ask that you would be at work in the foolishness of the preaching today. Father, I don't have the power to change anybody, let alone myself. So Father, I ask that your spirit would do the work, that you would convict us in the areas where we have fallen short. Convict us in the areas where we have set up idols that we base our identity in. So we ask that we wouldn't do so, that we wouldn't look inwardly to ourselves for power, but we would look outwardly to Christ, whom we can live a victorious Christian life because he was victorious for us upon the cross. Father, I pray for the one here today who doesn't know you. Lord, I just pray that they would come to see that they have nothing to offer you. May they become poor in spirit so that they might receive with open hands by your grace, all of the riches that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song, Be 